Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming back tonight. We have a real good crowd. Appreciate your faithfulness as we continue in this study. Thank you to each one who participated in our service tonight. Tonight, we are continuing on what righteousness looks like. And the emphasis tonight is that a righteous person is a lover of the truth. A lover of the truth. And as we think about that, I'm segueing into the importance of sharing the gospel as we are going to be talking about different groups that we are going to encounter and how to respond uh, to those groups. We're going to be looking at uh, Islamic faith and uh, is Islamic people starting the next time we meet. Next Sunday, of course, is Fellowship Sunday. Then the following week, uh, our brother uh, John Elias and his wife Karen are going to be with us. They were missionaries in England to the Muslim people, and now they are here in the United States uh, working uh, with uh, Islamic people groups and visiting mosques, etc. Uh, so they are a good uh, source of information for us. They're going to be with us the next three Sunday nights. Then we're going to have uh, Brother John Studenroth come, and he's going to be talking about um, homosexuality and uh, reaching out to uh, peoples of... Uh, uh, that segment of our society. So we're going to try to put into practice some of the things that we've been discussing about righteousness. So the Apostle Paul, so I have here, wouldn't it be wonderful if we look forward to sharing the gospel with others? The Apostle Paul looked forward to sharing the gospel with the people at Rome. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Paul is eager to share the gospel with those at Rome because he is not embarrassed by the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is the reason that we are not eager to share the gospel, and in fact even may be hesitant to share the gospel with others due to our embarrassment of the gospel? Uh, Are we ashamed to identify with the message of the cross? The reason that Paul is not embarrassed by the gospel is because it's the truth. It's the truth. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the answer to unrighteousness. Salvation here in the biggest sense of that word. It's the answer to the need for people's righteousness, the fact that they are unrighteous, they need to be forgiven. It is the gospel also that provides the means by which people can become righteous, as we looked at last week, uh, that the purpose of the gospel is to transform us and to make us a righteous people. So the answer to the unrighteousness of this world is, in fact, the gospel. So the key verse is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel has the power to deliver all those who Believe the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So those that reject the gospel, to them it is folly. King James, it is foolishness. It is foolishness. And we're all aware that there are many who view the gospel as just pure foolishness, as myth, as though you would have to be an ignoramus. You'd have to be stupid uh, 
to believe the gospel. And that is the reason why many people are ashamed of the gospel. Because with it comes a stigma. With it comes this assessment that if you believe that, you must be stupid. You must be ignorant. You must be unlearned. You must be a simpleton. You can't be very scientific. You can't be very knowledgeable. You can't be very well educated. Okay, If you're going to put your faith in this ancient story of a man that is born who is not just a man but a God-man who dies on a cross and rises again from the dead and ascends into heaven and is coming back. Okay, If you believe that, you've got to be pretty foolish. That is what our world thinks. But we know it to be true. Okay, But do we want to publicly declare our faith in what so many people think is foolish? Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And I hope that we aren't ashamed of the gospel. And there are good answers uh, to people's objection. But what we're going to see is whether people have a religious or irreligious background, the gospel is still the answer. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation everyone believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is certainly referring to ethnic groups, but also it's referring to those that have a very religious background, namely the Jews, and those that have a pretty irreligious background, the pagans, which would be the Gentiles. Okay? They don't have the word of God. Romans chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had God's word. The Gentiles didn't. All right? So whether you're steeped in God's word or whether you don't know anything about God, it's still the gospel that is going to bring someone into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And the power is in the gospel itself. God causes people to believe, having heard the gospel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God in three ways. First, the gospel reveals the righteousness that God imparts to the unrighteous. Verse 21, but now the, unrighteous, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest from the law, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone is unrighteous. But there is a righteousness that is revealed that comes from God, a righteousness that is imputed by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a standing where you are viewed as righteous. The gospel reveals that, and only the gospel does. The gospel reveals the fact that God is righteous, Romans 3.24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith, and now these words, this is what should be underlined, this was to show God's righteousness. This was to evident, uh, to provide evidence. This is a manifestation of God's righteousness. 
You see, his holy justice had to be satisfied. That he could be a just and a justifier of the uh, wicked. So the gospel reveals the justice of God. The reason for the cross is because righteousness had to be dealt with. It had to be punished. Third, the gospel reveals that a life that should be of righteousness comes from faith in God. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For faith, meaning from beginning to end, it is a message that righteousness comes as a result of believing in God. Not just object of righteousness, but subject of righteousness. But moving right along, the compounding problem of unrighteousness is that the unrighteous person rejects the truth. Unrighteousness seeks to squash the truth. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? They suppress, they seek to hold down the truth. Ungodly people are dishonest with the truth. They twist the truth. They disregard the truth of God. They try to obscure the evidence. Think of a trial. And think how a lawyer seeks to suppress the truth, tries to keep certain facts from being entered into evidence because it's going to reveal a person's guilt. They want to hold certain Evidence is back. All right? They are going to want to assert that there, there wasn't a legitimate search warrant. Therefore, you can't enter that evidence into consideration in the court of law. They are trying to suppress certain evidential truths. The scripture says the unrighteous person suppresses the truth. They refuse to consider it. Secondly, Unrighteousness stands against the truth. And just as Johnny's and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind. Now this word, rejected as regards the faith. It's a play on words. Just as they have rejected the truth, they in turn are going to be rejected. They stood opposed to Moses. They rejected his leadership. They rejected his truth. Okay? So the second form of unrighteousness is to actually seek to contradict the truth. Just like in the Garden of Eden, when God had said, the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you will die. The serpent said, You will not die. A direct contradiction of the truth. All right? And unrighteousness contradicts the truth. And then lastly, unrighteousness avoids the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the reason for the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Okay? Righteous people love the truth. Unrighteous people do not love the truth. They loved the darkness because their works were evil. They loved the lie. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to turn from their evil way. They called evil good, as opposed to calling good evil. All right? They celebrate unrighteousness, as we saw last week from Romans, who, though they know that they that do such things are worthy of condemnation, they give hearty approval to it. Right? People praise people that are living unrighteously. Right? They celebrate it. Okay? Uh, gay pride days and parades and all kinds of things that demonstrate approval. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So there is an avoidance of the truth. They're like cockroaches that when the light comes on, they just scatter and they are looking for darkness. Okay? So unrighteousness seeks to avoid the truth. They run from the truth. It's like kryptonite to Superman. Okay? They close their eyes. They don't want anything to do with the truth. So conversely, righteousness has a proper response to the truth. Righteousness embraces the truth. John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And if you remember, of course, Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? And then, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. And after having found no fault in this man, condemns Jesus to the cross. He is not willing to stand up for the truth. He's not willing to go against what the crowd wants, what the Jewish leader wants. He is not a righteous individual. He doesn't stand for the truth. He rejects what he knows to be true. He says, I find no fault in this man. He says it three times. I find no fault. I find no fault. I find no fault. And then he condemns him to death. He rejects the truth that he knows. He knows better. Righteousness is sustained by the truth. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Of course, John chapter 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So it is our love for the truth that sustains us in living righteously. That's why I try to get you to be reading your Bibles more and more. For the more we give ourselves to the truth, the more it's going to sustain us, the more it's going to aid us in a life of righteousness. And then lastly, righteousness submits to the truth. Acts 17, 11, 12. 
Now, this is, of course, the account of the Bereans. Now, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness. Okay, so first characteristic. They received the word with eagerness. They wanted to hear what Paul said. Okay, so righteousness wants to hear the word. Unrighteous people don't want to hear the word. Righteous people want to hear the word. Secondly, they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Honest. Having received the word, they looked at it to see whether these things were so. They just didn't reject it out of hand. They were assuming it was true, and then they were looking to the scriptures to see indeed that it was true. Many of them therefore believed. Okay? They believed because they were eager to hear the word. They were willing to examine, is that what the word says? They were honest, and so they Believed, along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. Righteousness is safeguarded by the truth. It's essential that we know the truth. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. There are many people. Well, one of the the, the characteristic of the Antichrist, of course, is that they the Antichrist is going to appear and he is going to present himself as being the Messiah, the Christ. But he's not the true Christ, he is the anti-Christ. And so there are many people today that are appearing to be righteous, appearing to be disseminators of the truth, but they are, in fact, deceivers. They are not saying what is true. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, And because no lie is of the truth. So in 1 John, the idea is, you know the truth. Secondly, no lie is of the truth. So you know the truth. And if you hear a lie, you should reject the truth, that that lie. And you should reject the liar. This antichrist, this, this person who is presenting themselves... As a spiritual individual, you know the truth. Now, if you hear a lie, then you should reject that lie. If you're a lover of the truth, you will. If you're not a lover of the truth, you will tolerate the lie. For whatever reason. Because of your affection for the individual who tells the lie because you're just indifferent to the truth for whatever reason. But 1 John is warning. You know the truth. Therefore, when you hear a lie, you better reject it. You better reject it. 
Being a lover of the truth is a safeguard of our spirituality. B, is it essential that we are not deceived by a depraved failure to love the truth? 2 Thessalonians 2.1 Now concerning the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. How are we to fulfill that command? How are we to present ourselves from being deceived? How can we fulfill that command? Don't allow yourself to be deceived. To be deceived. What is the protection? Let's move on. For that day will come, unless the rebellion comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders. Okay, so... When the true Antichrist comes, he's going to perform miracles. When the true Antichrist comes, he's going to perform miracles. Real miracles. He's going to raise the dead. Okay? And a lot of people are going to be deceived. This person is going to say that he is the Christ. And he's going to raise the dead. It's saying, but don't be deceived. What's going to keep you from being deceived? And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay? They didn't love the truth. They didn't know the truth. And they didn't prize the truth. The scripture talks about those that are deceiving and being deceived. Okay? So that if we are indifferent to truth, we are opening ourselves up to being deceived. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, delusion so they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth, now this word, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay? They had a greater love for unrighteousness than they have for the truth. It's a, really a very sobering portion of Scripture to, to think about. A failure to love the truth. A failure to love the Word of God. Okay. When put on the spot, when Antichrists are going to abound when there are many false teachers 
And I would submit to you that we are in the last days. False teaching abounds. And if someone is deceived, it's on their own head. Because there is truth available for people who love it. The word of God reveals unrighteousness. Okay. And we live in a time period that I think there is a disregard for the truth like never before. Okay. It started off with a philosophical failure to love the truth. Postmodernism. The aspect of the, the idea that truth is unknowable. That you can't really know the truth. You can't arrive at the truth. Truth is not objective. Truth is subjective. It's truth for you. What is true for you? What works for you? Okay? But that's your truth. Remember, you've all heard these kind of words. This is your truth. That's truth for you. That's what's good for you. There's not an objective standard for truth. It is subjective truth. Then there is what is known as deconstruction. Okay? And that is usually in, in terms of history. Okay? You may have heard statements like, the winners of war write the histories. And the idea is that history is unreliable. That history is full of lies. There are a lot of people actually today that deny the Holocaust. And you say, well, how in the world could somebody deny the Holocaust? Well, it's a deconstructionist view of history. Obviously, Suppressing evidences and things we've been talking about. But there are people who deny the, uh, the Holocaust. But what I'm telling you is we have moved from a philosophical discussion of what is truth to a place where truth is irrelevant. Truth is irrelevant. doesn't matter if someone tells the truth or not. They're not held accountable for not telling the truth. So let me give you an example. I'm going to use Donald Trump. We could use others, to be sure, uh, on the political scene. But I just, I just, here's a blatant statement I think is important for us uh, as we think about Islam and so on. So uh, re- I have this in quotes because this is taken from an article in uh, USA Today. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump has been making many bold statements recently, but one that caught a a politi-fact reader's eye involved religion and the admittance of refugees into the United States. So they do these political fact checks all the time on what the candidates say and whether it's true or not. So here is a quote from uh, Donald Trump. If you're from Syria and you're a Christian, you cannot come into this country And they're the ones that are being decimated. If you are Islamic, it's hard to believe you can come in so easily. Trump said in his speech in Las Vegas on July 11, 2015. In fact, it's one of our main groups of people that are coming in. Now, 
Not that we should discriminate against one or the other, but if you are a Christian, you cannot get into the country. You cannot get into the country. Okay. Is that true? If you are a professed Christian, can you not immigrate to the United States? Is it only the Islamic people that we receive? Is that true? No. Okay. We should all know that that's not true. Okay. 68% of immigrants claim to be Christians. 68% of the people coming to this country claim to be Christians. Are they Christians? I don't know. But they claim to be Christians and they're getting in. Okay. 3% of Syrian refugees. Now that's not a lot, but you have to remember from a nation where Christianity is less than 10%. So we should think that a small number of refugees that are coming into the United States would say that they're Christian because there are very few Christians in Syria. But 3% of them say they're Christians. That's not, if you're a Christian, you cannot come into this country. And all I'm saying to you is, my only point is, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the lies that are told. Nobody stands up and says, well, we can't have that as a president. We can't have that. Okay, we have somebody that's leading the polls in the Republican Party who repeatedly lies. It doesn't matter in the general public. Well, I'm not so concerned about the general public. I'm much more concerned about the church. So, B, the disregard for the truth is evident in the church at large in the United States. The term false teaching seems almost irrelevant. There is no standing against false teaching. There isn't. It's almost like the church has bought into the idea that truth is relative. That we can't really know the truth. You have your opinion of doctrine. I have my opinion of doctrine. We won't discuss it. We won't argue it. And we'll admit that there's really no way to know. Every view is okay. Let's just get along. Let's just, better yet, let's not talk about doctrine at all. So then we won't fight about it. Let's just praise the Lord and sing and be quiet about what the Bible teaches. Okay? That's where we're at. Let's spend ten minutes from the Bible and let's not get too deep. And certainly let's not start talking about doctrine or the Trinity or the virgin birth or any of that stuff, okay? Because we can't agree on it. We can't agree on it. I I just want to show you something that, that I've gotten just super bent out of shape about. Number one, Jesus claimed to be the I Am, the self-existent God. John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. 
Uh, excuse me. So Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you, been, have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. That is a statement that he is God. He is Jehovah. Jehovah is simply the verb to be. It is the I am. When Moses spoke with God at the burning bush, God said, I am. When he said, Moses said, what is your name? He said, I am that I am. That's what Jehovah means. I am. I am the self-existing eternal God. I am. It is one of the most precious titles in the word of God. I'm not going to read the account because I'm going to show you a video. But remember when Jesus is going to be arrested in the garden and the crowd comes up to him. Let's, let's look at John 18, starting at verse 7, under number 3. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Uh, uh, excuse me, let's go back to verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said this to him, he said, I am he, that should be in italics again. All these I am he's should be in italics, meaning that he is supplied. What Jesus literally said is, I am. And when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, That was the demonstration of his deity. These soldiers, all he had to say was, I am, and they were helpless. They fell to the ground. Then they get up, and then uh, Peter strikes off the ear of Malchus, and Jesus says, let them go. They don't hold Peter accountable. They don't kill Peter because of Jesus' power. He dismisses his disciples, and they just let him go. But he is the I am. Okay, you got it? He is God. The most precious title there is. I want to show you a video on Joel Osteen's latest book, The Power of I Am. If you're at a loss for positivity, our next guest says two words will lead you to a happier and more productive life. Trish, Joel right? Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> those those words also. Speaking of, the author of the new book, The Power of I Am, preacher and oh, best-selling author, Joel Osteen. In two words, your reaction is I am, it. right? That's right. You know, it's great to be with you guys, but yeah, it's, it's, it's what follows the I am. So a lot of people go around, we're talking about Elizabeth, I am unattractive, I am not lucky, I am slow. Well, you're defeating yourself with your own talk, with your own thoughts. So my, my thought is, whatever follows that is going to eventually come finding you. So when you go around, I'm blessed, I'm healthy, I am talented, you're inviting the right things into your life. And it can change you. your mood, it can yeah. change your mindset. 
Exactly. So many people are against themselves and they don't know it. Mm. And I always say this, we have enough people in life against us and circumstances. Don't be against yourself. I mean, go through the day. You don't have to do it always out loud, but in your thoughts, you know what? I am healthy. I am attractive. I am fun. I am likable. I am strong. Just some positive effort. Okay. So let's say the average person okay. and you say there's a lot of negativity. They say, I am, they think I am sad. Yeah. How do you turn that around? Well, I think it's, it's, it's more than just saying one thing, but I think it's, you know, you have to have that grateful attitude. You have to, you have to turn around and find something to be grateful about. And I think it starts in the morning. But I do think th through the day, you can't go around thinking, I am sad, I am lonely, I am depressed. The more you think that, you're just going to yeah. invite more of that in. So I turn it around and say, you know what? I, I'd go, I am blessed. I'm full of joy. I'm, mm -hmm. See, the scripture says, let the weak say I'm strong. So you're not supposed to describe how you feel. You're supposed to say what you want to. Right. Look for the good stuff. We have a God that is for us, and you're yeah, sharing right. that too. We have our viewers. They're so excited. They've been sending in email questions for you all morning. Okay. Long, Pastor stop um, just a second. This is one from Sharon saying, how oh. can I deepen my connection stop, with stop, God stop. on a daily Okay. <clears throat> so just to give you a perspective, okay, he's written... Many, many books that are on New York bestseller list, okay? He has 7 million listeners every week. 7 million people listen to Joel Osteen every week, okay? So the I am has now become power of self-thinking, okay? Of just viewing yourself in this positive light. But listen to these two questions and the response that he gives to these two questions. Okay. ...basis and change the course of my life. You say to Sharon? Well, I would say, Sharon, the scripture says, when you put God first, he'll crown your efforts with success. So I think you start the day off... Take five minutes if you can in the morning. Get up in the morning and say, God, I'm thankful to be alive. I'm thankful for my family. So find, you know, if you just acknowledge God. I found, too, it says acknowledge God in all your ways. If through the, throughout the day, under your breath, you know, walking on here, under my breath, God, help me to know what to say today. You know, going to play ball, going to work out in all your ways. If just under your breath, if you're acknowledging God, I believe your life will go better. God will, you know, he says he'll right. direct your path. Instead of focusing on how much you don't like me, you focus on how much you like them. That was, that's what you were saying. Am I correct? Yeah. Now say that again. Okay. <laughs> All right, Lisa says this. I have so much regret over past choices that I feel frozen with fear, afraid to make decisions. I don't trust my own judgment. What is your best suggestion for me? Well, you got to get your confidence back. you gotta, you got to say, okay, I'm going to let go of the past. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. But if, if you're living on regrets and in failures, it's just going to keep you from the good things God has in store. I mean, the scripture says God will give you beauty for ashes, but I think sometimes if you hold on to the ashes, you're never going to see the beauty. So you just got to take a step of faith and say, God, I believe this is what I'm supposed to do and move forward. But you do, and people look at you and say, well, his life's going so good, he fills up stadiums every weekend. What does he have to be sad about? You write in your book, yeah. you did have that moment. You travel the world with your dad. Your dad passes away. This, you guys were inseparable. And how did you handle it? How did you think you'd handle it? And how yeah. did you handle yeah. it? Yeah, well, I thought when my dad was gone, because I did work with him every day, I thought, man, you know, what am I going, going to do? You know, it's going to be a, a, such a different day. But, you know, when my dad died suddenly of a heart attack in 1999, I felt a peace that I could only describe that God could give you. Mm -hmm. I wasn't worried. I, I missed my dad. I was, 
you know, you're, you go through that grieving process, but I just felt a strength and a peace. And that's when I even stepped up to pastor the church when I never knew I could. So mm -hmm. I believe God gives you strength for every season. You, you have to make that choice, though, that, hey, I'm not going to sit around here thinking, oh, man, God, where were you? Why did my dad leave? You're not going to get better. You're going to move forward. And, and then a new door will open. I am strong is the message there. The, the brand right. new book comes out this week. It's called The Power of I Am. Yes. Joel, Thanks, always Steve. a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, very you very much so much for all. joining us today. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Oftentimes, as you listen to these preachers, what is even more important than what they say is what they don't say. Here is a person that said, I am living with regrets. I am sorry for the decisions I've made in my life. What am I supposed to do? Not one single word about confession. Not word about seeking God's forgiveness. Not a word about how God can restore and heal. How God can intervene. Nothing except that you must just learn to go on. Okay? You must now put good things for the ashes. Okay? You need just to take a different standard of life. And if you can't make good decisions, you've just got to say to yourself, I think this is a good decision, I'm going to go with it. Not, you need to go to the scriptures in order to make good decisions. You, you need to learn to follow what the scriptures have to say in order to make good decisions. Okay, nothing about that. How can I draw into a deeper, closer relationship to God? Nothing about, again, reading the scriptures. Nothing about growing in righteousness. Okay, the message is acknowledging God, whatever that means. Okay, and just saying that there's a God. Okay, and God helped me when my father died, gave me a peace. Well, that's great, that's great. But where did that peace come from? Was it peace in knowing that his father had put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? And you know, he doesn't say that. He talks about being strong. And if you're strong, you can have that peace too. And then he got the confidence in order, in order to take over the church. People don't care. People just don't care. And I could have put a thousand and one different preachers up there that say the same kinds of things. Because there's not a love for the truth. There just isn't. People are not craving the truth. People aren't going to church to find the truth. They're going for an experience. They're going to feel better. They're going for this or that. But they don't care that they aren't hearing the truth. And that's what is setting the church and the world up for the greatest deception that's ever come. Because people won't know better. They won't know the truth. And if they do know the truth, they'll just tolerate it. They'll just tolerate it. There are a lot of people 
that are sitting in churches that know better. And they're just tolerating it. (coughs) Righteousness stands up for the truth. Righteousness submits to the truth. Righteousness seeks the truth. Righteousness loves the truth. That's what righteousness looks like. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father, help us to love the truth more and more. And in that love for the truth, help us to be willing to stand for the truth. Help us to be willing to share the truth. Help us to be willing to identify with the truth, knowing that we're going to be mocked. And, oh, Lord, help us to be careful with the truth, even as the Word of God teaches to accurately divide the word of truth. Oh, Lord, may we love the truth enough to take the time to make the determination of what is truth and not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Certainly that's the day in which we live. But Lord, help us to love and seek the truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.